This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Chalkbeat editor Kara Fitzpatrick discusses her book, The Death of Public School. She examines the school choice movement and the future of education in America. She's interviewed by Washington Post education reporter Mariah Ballingit. Hi, Kara. It's so wonderful to be here talking with you today about your book. I wanted to first say what an extraordinary achievement. This book is the most authoritative uh, history that I've personally ever read of the school choice movement. It is so thoroughly researched. It is really, it really feels encyclopedic to me almost, like it is everything (laughs) you would ever need to know. Um, I wanted to first ask, um, I'm obviously very familiar with your incredible work as an education reporter. um, And I know a lot of education reporters have these sort of crystallizing moments in reporting where we're in a classroom or with a family and we have an aha moment. I'm curious to know if you had one of those moments that led you to start writing this book. Uh, it's a good question. I think, I think you know, I started thinking about the school choice movement when I was reporting about segregation in Florida. Um, and as part of that reporting, we interviewed, our team interviewed just dozens of families that were essentially trying to escape these segregated sort of low performing schools in this particular county in Florida. And I was, I was sort of struck by what the options were, you know, um, there were other public schools, potentially magnets, potentially um, charter schools. And then some of the kids were using school vouchers to go to private schools. And we followed some of the kids and, you know, and I just, it it wasn't part of that series at all, but it just struck me as sort of this tension between sort of the systemic reform of a system and what a family actually does when they haven't found a good fit for their child. And so that just kind of stayed with me and I didn't have much to do with it, you know, as far as that particular piece of work. But um, But it kind of was the start of thinking about the history of school choice. And so you start this book, and I won't spoil the end, but I know that the book starts in the 1950s, um, sort of pre and post Brown v. Board of Education, as a lot of Southern states began resisting the orders, the court orders to integrate. Um, Why did you decide to start the book there? Why did you pinpoint that as the origin point of the school choice movement? Because I imagine that, you know, some people in the school choice movement would not be particularly proud that that's the beginning of their movement. Yeah, and I think I think that there's um, you know there's some some awkwardness about that, right? But I think you know one of the things I was sort of trying to figure out when I was trying to decide how to start the book is sort of looking for where does this idea begin? And it's actually quite hard to pinpoint where the idea begins because sort of the stylized history of school choice is that it starts with Milton Friedman you know, an economist writing an essay about vouchers in the 50s. And then the history that's told often is that then nothing sort of happens. Friedman keeps this idea alive. And then in 1990, Milwaukee starts the first school voucher program in the country, the first modern one. That's sort of the history that you hear. Um, But there's, you know, there's other pieces of American history that you kind of have to go back to. You have to look at what the founding fathers intended education and how that developed because there was an agreement about how to educate the nation's children. Um, You can look at 
what happened with Catholics, you know, coming into this country. We had all of this immigration of, of Catholic people and a common school system was forming at that time in the 1800s, but it was distinctly Protestant. And so you could also start with the Catholics and that whole piece of the history. And so I kind of was grappling with, well, what makes sense as a beginning? And I decided 1950, um, not just because of segregationists, I thought what was interesting about that time period was that you did have Milton Friedman writing this essay about school vouchers. You also had sort of a lesser known figure in Virgil Bloom, who was a priest in Milwaukee, who was very much interested in school vouchers for religious liberty, you know, to help religious families attend private school and particularly Catholic schools, but not exclusive to that. And so you had these two voices. And then at the same time, you had segregationists who were interested essentially in privatizing the school system to avoid Brown. And it started in the lead up to Brown when it seemed clear, you know, that we were moving in that direction and then intensified post Brown. But I thought, you know, that time period is so fascinating because you start to see how you could take one sort of tool or mechanism in school vouchers and use it for a lot of different purposes. And I felt like today we're still having some of those same threads, some of those same questions about vouchers, about who they're for, who they're not for, does it help or hurt the public system? And how do you factor in sort of values, you know, um, religious education into that? And so I felt like some of those debates from the 1950s are still in play. And so that's why I decided to start there. Well, I found the beginning of the book to be one of the most intriguing and compelling parts, um, partially because it is so dramatic. It's very emotional. Um, and it really has to do with one of the you know, biggest cases in U.S. Supreme Court history. I obviously encourage the viewers to pick up the book and read it. But can you walk us through a little bit how Brown v. Board of Education and how uh, desegregation gave birth to um, a school choice movement? Well, so it's interesting. You know, there was, as I said, there were sort of indications that Brown was coming down the line. Um, there had already been a few court cases that were at the university level, desegregation cases at the university level. And so it seemed clear that next would be the K-12 system. And so it kind of started in Georgia. Um, that was one of the first places where where there were influential voices saying, you know, we essentially need to give up public schools rather than desegregate them. And it was one of the things I found interesting in the research was that, you know, this is before Google and Internet and and really widespread availability of, of news in the way that we understand it now. And and yet these voices in Georgia were picked up by national media, you know, so there was an awareness that this was happening. And I thought that was, was kind of interesting. And then sort of watching how it spread, right? Because Georgia came up with sort of this idea of we're going to privatize the school system, not just through vouchers. Vouchers were sort of a like an escape mechanism for students. I mean, they were they were talking about leasing buildings, you know, to private entities. They were talking about putting public school teachers um, having private school teachers then be eligible for state benefits. You know, they were talking about a wholesale privatization of the system, not just vouchers. Um, and so I thought that was sort of this interesting example of how you might use vouchers. Um, but but Brown itself was 
this just the sea change for education in America. And so how the South reacted to it was incredibly interesting. But there's also this sort of tension there of segregation exists in the North. It's not just a Southern thing. Um, and then how that kind of factored into the future of school vouchers, you know, um, families fleeing the South and then encountering different types of discrimination in the North. And so I just, I found that whole period of time just so interesting. And so basically, it, I realize this is an oversimplification, but a lot of states created voucher programs for white families to skirt integration so that they would not have to send their white children to schools alongside uh, black children. Yeah, and it was actually, you know, it was actually considered to be sort of a less extreme measure, which sounds sounds strange. And I found that kind of startling when I was doing the research because it seems like an extreme measure. But this was considered sort of a moderate alternative to just to closing schools, which did happen um, in a few places. And so it was sort of viewed as this escape mechanism, as I said, to, to let white families send their their children to all white schools, all white private schools. It also, when when it started being struck down by the courts, you know, the courts very quickly cut on to a lot of the things that segregationists were doing to skirt Brown and start striking down various laws that were passed. Um, then they tried to, you know, Southern lawmakers tried to make the program sort of race neutral. And so then you did see tiny numbers of black students also using vouchers, but but it was pretty clearly a movement for white families to avoid desegregated public schools. Yeah, that's to me is one of the most shocking um, things about that era that public officials would have rather shut down public schools and that they actually did actually not far from D.C. and parts of Virginia rather than have integrated public schools. No public schools to them was superior to integrated public schools. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that you found a lot of things really intriguing about this. I'm curious to know, um, having you've been an education reporter for a very long time, um, we are all, especially in Florida, I'm sure you've covered the debate over school choice, over school reform. Uh, Florida is like a laboratory of school choice. Um, What were some of the surprising things that you learned in researching this book? Well, you know, it was interesting how little I actually did know, Um, you know, and I I was a reporter in Florida for 10 years. And, you know, and I I grew up in Washington state, which has essentially no school choice, very blue state, Um, not the part that I grew up in, actually, but overall. And, um, you know, Washington has sort of charter schools a little bit, but it was extremely, um, you know, it was contested in the courts. And so I grew up in a place with no choice. And then I, I moved to Florida as an education reporter and I spent 10 years there. And, you know, and there's there's tons of choice. And so I was sort of unfamiliar with it. And and, you know, as an education reporter, so often your focus is on covering the local school district. That's sort of what you're assigned to essentially is covering the government agency. And so for me, I spent a lot of time first just trying to understand how the system works, you know, the public school system, understanding how Florida finances its schools, you know, kind of basic things and and sort of bumping into choice from time to time. You know, I might cover a charter school that was getting shut down by the school district, you know, that had oversight, um, um, you know, oversight of the charter school. And so I might cover that, but I wasn't necessarily 
really tuned into the history of it all. And, you know, I would sort of run up against the debate for it. But it was um, when I was there, it was sort of an established thing already. You know, um, the court case that struck down a particular voucher program in Florida had happened. And, and so it was sort of interesting to me when I started researching it. I just I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I knew, I guess, is the way to say it. And so lots of things were revelatory to me. I mean, more than more than I would like to admit, um, you know, I, I really was familiar with sort of the stylized history that it started with Milton Friedman and then kind of nothing happened. And then Milwaukee. And I didn't even know that much about Milwaukee, to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think especially if we are really myopic and look at this in the present day, we might view these issues to be kind of strictly bipartisan. Republicans are in favor of school choice. Democrats are against it. But as your book shows, that's really not the case, even going all the way back to the origins. Um, I really liked the anecdote you shared about the sociologist who wrote um, sort of a treatise for school choice in both a right wing and a left wing publication. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how um, how this how school choice sort of defies a lot of the rules that we have come to think of that, you know, split issues into half? Yeah, that was one of the things that I think kept me going through doing all of this research. You know, I spent five years on it um, was these sort of surprising moments in the research. And one of them, I think, really was the idea that that this was not strictly a right wing thing. And certainly in the present day, every, you know, school choice is incredibly polarizing and people have very, very strong feelings about it. There does not really seem to be middle ground. I have gone in search of middle ground and I have not found much. Um, So one of the things that I thought was really surprising was sort of this idea of overlap, you know, that if you start the book in 1950, you have these overlapping ideas from from voucher advocates, and you have the segregationists, you have Milton Friedman, you have Virgil Bloom. But then, you know, these these programs that were started in the South, they started very quickly to get shut down by the courts in the late 50s and into the 60s. But during the 1960s, even as the courts are saying these programs are essentially racist, you know, they're trying to thwart Brown, you had new voices coming in, and some of them were progressive voices saying, you know, school vouchers could actually be a tool of empowerment for low-income kids, and particularly for Black children. And I thought that was so startling that you would be making an argument like that at the same moment that the courts are saying these programs are thwarting desegregation and they need to end. And so I thought that overlap was fascinating. And some of those some of those people, you know, Christopher Jenks, you mentioned, that's the anecdote, um, who wrote in two different um, politically leaning magazines about this idea. Um, he was, you know, a fairly liberal sociologist at the time. And Kenneth Clark, who was actually involved in Brown, he wrote a, an essay about this. You know, and so I thought that was something that I think is out there a little bit. If you're in maybe the choice movement, I think you're aware of some of those voices potentially, but I think the larger, you know, most people I don't think are actually aware of that. And so I thought that was, was interesting. And you see that essentially throughout the entire history, which I also thought was fascinating. I mean, certainly it is dominated by the movement is dominated by conservatives, 
but they're not the only voices. And so I found that kind of intriguing and it, it made me sort of dig a little deeper into, okay, well, then how did that sort of work? You know, how did these different ideas about choice sort of play against each other? You know, and I thought it was interesting that you had Milton Friedman essentially debating with Christopher Jenks and some of those other voices about how you do vouchers. Yeah, that's it is really astonishing. And on one hand, in the South, you had um, school choice being used to avoid integration, to avoid a major ruling on civil rights in the North, I, I suppose. And I think Milwaukee is a great example of this. You had people arguing this is actually a tool of empowerment for black families. I think really there's nobody who really embodies that contradiction uh, more than Polly Williams in Milwaukee. She, to me, was like a very, very fascinating character. Can you talk a little bit about her and her role in the movement? Sure. So Polly Williams was a a black Democratic state legislator in Milwaukee, um, in Wisconsin. And she was... She was she's passed away now, but she was a really interesting woman because she was deeply interested in education, but she was opposed to integration. And she was very much I mean, I I think I would call her a black nationalist. You know, she was very interested in helping her community. She was very interested in trying to sort of make institutions work for black families. And she she didn't think that the Milwaukee Public School District was working for black children. And so she did a number of things trying to sort of improve the system. And one of the things that she was opposed to was busing. She didn't she thought essentially that integration in Milwaukee was falling too hard. The burden of it was largely on on black families. And she didn't think that it was actually doing much to help black children. She didn't think they were benefiting from being bused to another school. And so, you know, some of her policies were attacking integration policies. Um, some of some of the things she proposed, like one of the ones I think that, that got the most attention um, was that she and Howard Fuller, who's a civil rights activist involved in the movement, um, made a proposal for an all-black school district. And, you know, that was one of the ones that really got headlines, but in, in a lot of little different ways, she was trying to improve education and and felt like she really wasn't getting a lot of support from her own party, from Democrats, and, and sort of became open to this idea of school vouchers. And she would, you know, she would say, and she was quoted as saying that it wasn't about Milton Friedman. She didn't necessarily have a familiarity with, with, with Milton Friedman. For her, it was very much, this is something that could help Black students essentially leave the public school system that she thought was failing them. And so I thought, here's someone who embodies some of these contradictions, because, you know, I don't want to give it all away, but she she became somewhat disillusioned with some of her white conservative allies over time. And so I thought her story spoke to a lot of the different sort of questions and debates and the tension in all of this. Um, and so it's one of the reasons I focused on her and also because Milwaukee was sort of the first modern program. So it made sense to focus some attention there. So you basically had a woman who you would describe as a black nationalist um, representing a, a majority black city partnering with white lawmakers, conservative white lawmakers. Yeah, and she called it uh, she called it the unholy alliance, 
which um, I actually, it was actually the original title of the book. I thought that was so great in so many ways. Um, uh, it, it did not, I did not really say education to a lot of people, so it did not end up being the title of the book. And I used it, I think, just for a chapter title. But um, but I thought that kind of, that short description really did kind of speak to the strangeness of the alliance that she made with Tommy Thompson, who was the white Republican governor at the time. Yeah, I think that's what, that's one of the things that makes education reporting so fascinating is that there are no clear uh, partisan boundaries on a lot of these issues. And I think school choice is probably the best example of that. Um, what do you want uh, people to take away from this book? What do you hope that they'll uh, conclude or learn uh, once they finish this book? Well, so I really was trying to go into it as a journalist, as someone without a viewpoint. You know, I felt like there are pieces of this history around and there's there's a number of, of partisan books, you know, for or against school choice. And so I felt like I wanted to create something that would explain all of this history that I thought I hadn't known as a reporter that I thought was helpful in sort of understanding what's going on in education right now. And I wanted it to be, you know, sort of neutral and fair minded um, which actually is kind of hard because I think people want you to make an argument and to pick a side, especially with something that's incredibly polarizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what, I, what I'm hoping for is that people who are maybe less familiar with school choice but are watching the news right now and seeing sort of this landslide of choice legislation and all this activity and all this discussion about parental freedom, you know, all of these things that are kind of dominating the news – I, I think what I would hope is that someone could read the book and at least have a, a good understanding of, of how we reach this place and know where some of this is coming from. And then, you know, I, I had some sort of driving questions in the introduction about, you know, what does this mean for public schools and what does it mean for democracy and sort of what do we owe our communities? Um, but I didn't want to answer those questions. I wanted that to be for the reader to answer. So. Yeah, I mean, the, I won't, again, I won't spoil the ending, but the yep. the main meat of the book um, sort of ends around 2018, 2019, pre-pandemic. Um, you do go into the pandemic and what's going on currently in the introduction a little bit. Um, but what, if we, if we were to look at the period of time between when your book ends and the current period, um, you know, you call this the the death of public schools. You do sort of predict that this movement will grow stronger. Um, If we look at that period of time, does it prove your thesis? Um, Does it, how do you reflect on on what's happened since the book ends um, in relation to your book? Yeah, so I I did end in 2019 and I I was sort of I was sort of looking for an ending um, because it's weird to be writing something where it's dominating the news cycle, which begin, you know, it, that wasn't happening when I started the book around 2017, uh, but it very much was happening as I was as I was finishing the book. Um, you know, the the pandemic happened, and and it was a really strange thing because I was sort of living through that, 
Um, and my own children were out of school and doing remote learning and then homeschooling for a period of time. And I had an infant and it was, um, it was kind of a disaster actually, but it was, but it was interesting because so then the pandemic kind of opened up, you know, I think this political opportunity for, for Republicans, you know, to, to really push school choice legislation in a way that we hadn't seen for a while. And so, you know, there was just this crazy avalanche of school choice legislation. And there was also kind of a shift in argument for it, right? The argument previously had been a lot about empowering certain groups of students, you know, students with disabilities, um, low-income students. And and there had been a a really strong argument that this was actually a civil rights issue. And then somewhere during the pandemic, it shifted a bit. And it started being a little bit about parental freedom for everyone. And then there were there were a few pieces that came out. You know, the Heritage Foundation had a piece come out where the authors were essentially arguing that that Republicans should use the culture wars, you know, the stuff about CRT and DEI and these things um, to push legislative wins essentially for school choice. And when I saw that come out, I was really struck by it because it's rather different than making an argument centered around civil rights. Um, And then we started to see, you know, Republican lawmakers passing laws restricting how you can teach about history, you know, particularly black history. And so I was looking at this period of time and trying to figure out what it means. And I, you know, I, I think it's interesting because it's made the book very relevant Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of, you know, for a history book, I felt like you can't, you can't end as something, you know, literally as new laws are passing, <laughs> you know, you can't have the ending be something that's, that's like shifting sand. And so I, I kind of thought, well, I will sort of deal with it in the introduction. I think it's very much pointing in a direction. It, it certainly feels like the argument I was making in the book is real and true and that these things are happening, especially when we look at some of the the Supreme Court cases, you know. Um, But I felt like it was still a little early to say how all of this would shake out. Because I think right now we're, we're starting a school year when all of this legislation is passed. And we're just now starting to see the numbers of people who are actually going to take, you know, the state up on some of these new programs. If no one actually uses the programs, then it's not creating this sea change, you know, but but we're starting to see actually the numbers really increase. And so I think it does point in a direction that is, you know, not great for the public school system. And I feel more and more confident about the argument that I was making, but I still think there are some pretty big questions about where it all ends up. Yeah, and I'm trying to be conscientious that this is one education reporter talking to another education reporter. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what has happened since the book ended in 2018? And I know you deal with some of it in the introduction, but it seems like we are living through a pretty extraordinary part of the school choice movement. Can you talk a little bit about what has happened since the pandemic started? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's been this explosion of choice legislation. There's huge expansions. More than half the states in the country now have choice programs. There's also been kind of an interesting backlash against charter schools, which had been sort of the more popular and, and accepted 
um, education reform from choice, you know, that had bipartisan support. When President Trump came into office and when Betsy DeVos became the education secretary, I think that administration was so polarizing that it had some ripple effects in choice. And so we did see kind of a democratic backlash against charter schools. Um, you know, and, and that, that I think is still playing out a little bit. But now we have also this question of whether or not there's going to be religious charter schools, which is kind of a wild card thing that's still still playing out even in the last few months. Um, but I think the overall thing that has happened is that there's just been this massive expansion of school choice legislation. And one of the key things within that has been, you know, this push for universal school vouchers, which means that they're no longer limited to low-income children or they're no longer limited to just students with disabilities. But the idea that every family is entitled to take some amount of tax dollars and then pay, you know, use it to pay for the education that suits them. And it, it varies a little bit by state, but generally speaking, that you know, that means homeschooling and private education and, you know, if you want to use it for tutoring, um, online learning. And so I think that piece of it, that it's really gone universal, is one of the biggest things that we've seen. And for me, you know, the argument I was making in the book was sort of looking at whose vision for school choice sort of wins out in the end, you know, is it Milton Friedman who very much was in favor of universal vouchers for everyone, or is it sort of more Polly Williams who very much viewed it as a tool for low-income children? And I think right now we're really seeing that it's Friedman, you know, it's universal vouchers that that sort of wins the day. And maybe the priest, Bloom, who, who really wanted the opportunity to direct more taxpayer dollars towards religious schools. Yeah, you know, Virgil Bloom is is sort of a lesser known figure. And I talk to people in the choice movement who who don't know who he is, which is interesting because he really sort of predicted a lot of this in a way um, and was was arguing in a direction that now we're seeing the Supreme Court take. But he was making the arguments in the 50s and 60s, you know, and um and it's really that was really interesting in the research to look back at some of the things he was writing decades and decades ago that are so relevant today. So, yeah, I think the the religious liberty aspect of it is um, also having a moment. I think, yeah, one of the I have been writing a lot about the religious charter school in Oklahoma. This is a Catholic school that wants to or the Catholic diocese there wants to open a virtual charter school which means it would be entirely funded by taxpayer dollars. Um, and they've said, you know, that they are, are sort of picking and choosing which federal laws they would abide by. Um, I'm curious to know how much you think Christian nationalism is playing into the current school choice movement, um, because there are obviously people who believe that the U.S. was founded as a Christian country and that therefore we should allow taxpayers to support Christian education in the schools, and that even public schools should have some um, Christianity taught. Um, how much do you think that's playing into the current school choice movement? I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because I think it's it's a lot more relevant now, actually, than it, it was. Um, you know, the I, I use Virgil Bloom in the book sort of to to stand in for a lot of those issues you know but 
But actually, when you look at how school choice happened, how, you know, it, it passed legislatively, it had very little to do with a push for religious education. You know, that's not how Milwaukee or Cleveland really happened. Um, and I, I mean, in the sense of how it passed and how they formed, you know, allyships to to get the legislation to pass. Um, you know, that wasn't really a piece of it. I think it's interesting now because it's it's very much a part of it in a way that I think it wasn't, you know, in the 90s, in the early 2000s. Religious schools were included, eventually included in Milwaukee and, and Cleveland started with them. So it raised all of those church state questions, but it wasn't sort of the argument that people within the movement were making for why we needed it. Right. That wasn't it wasn't about pluralism and um, the United States history as a Christian country. It wasn't sort of about that. And it was is interesting because um, the Supreme Court, you know, essentially validated Cleveland's vouchers in 2002. And one of the lawyers involved in that case in a piece afterward for the for the New York Times, he was he was quoted as saying, if the case had been about if the justices viewed the case as being about religion, then it probably it wasn't going to go anywhere. But if they viewed it as being about education, then they had a shot at winning and they did end up winning Zelman. And so it's kind of striking today now to see that so many of the arguments for choice are essentially about values and you know, pluralism that the country has this history, um, you know, of, of so many different people from so many different places with different religious views all being here together, you know, and that people should be allowed to select an education based on their values. And and I, I just find it interesting because it wasn't really as big of a thread in most of the history as it is now. Apart from maybe if you want to go back to the 1800s and talk about Catholics, you know, that was very much that. But but it's kind of interesting to watch it now because this isn't what it was about not too long ago. Yeah, I mean, I think that was another really fascinating nugget to me that, you know, we know that the Catholic Church has a very, very robust system of, of schools um, and that they developed because the public schools were overtly Protestant. That was really, really interesting to me. Yeah, you know, and the the Catholic school system is sort of, it's sort of interesting to watch this playing out with the religious charter, uh, you know, because it is the archdiocese that made the application and it is going to be, an ex- if it opens, it's going to be an explicitly Catholic virtual school mm-hmm. because, you know, Catholics are not monolithic on the issue of school choice. There has always been, There've always been advocates like Bloom who wanted more state aid for religious schools. And and he really thought Catholic schools were providing a public service. You know, Catholic schools tend to be um, good. You know, they tend to have that reputation. And and so he really thought these schools are providing a public service and deserve funding. And also that religious families shouldn't be taxed for a system that they are not you know, participating in and then also be paying tuition. You know, he thought that was discrimination. Um, but it's interesting because the the religious charter school opens a lot of questions about government intrusion and government oversight. And so not, not everyone in the school choice movement, you know, 
is actually in favor of that. And so I've, I've found that kind of interesting too, to watch people saying, maybe this is legally permissible and we'll see, but maybe it's not a good idea either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is one thing. And again, that um, really shows that school choice is still, even now that it's very polarized, not a cleanly partisan issue because you have advocates for um, charter schools, for example, who are coming out against this religious charter school because they believe that charter schools should be public and should follow all the same laws and rules that public schools do. Um, I'm curious to know, too, um, like how much, and I, this is something I reflect on a lot, um, especially in covering the politics of, of education movements and the politics of education. We're frequently talking to adults who um, have their own agendas, who bring an ideology, who want to you know, make political wins. In reflecting on this book, how much was this about kids? That's a great question. You know, I I spent some time as I was writing the book thinking about the fact that this was much more a legal history than I realized, and it was much more about politics than I realized. And you know, and that that pushed me in some interesting interesting directions as a reporter you know, because I had first kind of become interested in it because I was following families and interviewing children and then watching them go to to different schools and sort of seeing their experiences of, you know, was this a good escape from public schools? Was it not, you know, watching people kind of bounce around essentially looking for the right fit. And then to be doing sort of the writing and the research and and realize that that actually a lot of this is political arguments. A lot of it is legal arguments. And, and you know, it's, it's maybe less about kids than I thought in certain respects. You know, that was sort of startling in a way. And, I, you know, I mean, I think students are at the heart of the conversation, right? They're at the heart of the debate because it's essentially about how do we educate the nation's kids and what is public education? You know, you hear Republicans making an argument that public education is actually any education paid for with tax dollars, which is rather different than the traditional understanding of of what public schools are. You know, and so it, it it is sort of interesting to see the kids being a little bit secondary sometimes to a legal argument and and sort of political maneuvering. Um, one example I had in the the book that I thought was more about political maneuvering and less about children was what happened with um, Washington D.C.'s program very early on when when Republican lawmakers were making some of the first proposals for D.C. to have school vouchers. The the vouchers were worth so little that even the private schools in D.C. were saying, you know, this isn't going to pay our tuition. You would need so much more money to make this meaningful, you know. And so I I asked a few school choice advocates kind of what was this really about? Because it didn't actually seem to be about opening a lot of doors for children with the with the first proposal. I'm not talking about later on. And, you know, and a couple of people told me what it was more about keeping the argument alive, you know, than than thinking it was actually going to happen, especially at that time with a Democratic president. 
Oh, so basically, there was a proposal for a voucher program that wouldn't have actually allowed any children to leave public school to attend a private school. Yeah, basically. And so, I Which, guess. Sorry, go ahead. I was just say it's just it's sort of that's hard to square with an argument that this is about kids, right? And I think some Democratic lawmakers sort of pointed out at the time some of the hypocrisy of that. Now, the program when it did pass was was the voucher was worth a lot more. And so then you might be able to say this is a lot more about actually opening doors for children. But but that very early proposal, it was just I just thought it was striking when you have private school leaders saying, you know, this isn't enough to be meaningful. And I'm really interested um, in the fact that you actually started you know, your interest in this topic came from actually reporting on families who were trying to make these decisions rather than the other way, which is typically how it happens. How did your reporting in Pinellas County in Florida um, and sitting with these families who were trying to decide whether they were going to use a voucher program or send their child to a charter school, how did that inform the way you did your research and how you wrote the book? Well, you know, it was interesting because I wasn't, as I said, I wasn't super familiar with all the ins and outs of the history of school choice. And I was also very much not focused on that. You know, what I was covering in Pinellas County was was very much about one school district making, you know, kind of this horrible decision to essentially resegregate um, their schools and then what happened over time as those schools were sort of bled of resources. And and that was very much my focus. And I really thought that that, that piece of work, that it was five stories, that series spoke to, you know, segregation and integration as a potential solution. And I thought it was sort of interesting when it, it, that piece of work got very much viewed through the lens of whether a person was for or against choice. Mm-hmm. And and so some people who read that thought, well, the solution to these segregated schools is to give children choice, to give them the ability to leave. And, and other people, you know, sort of viewed it as very much a bid for, you know, these schools need more resources, they need more funding, they need more veteran teachers, you know. And so I became kind of aware of that, these sort of polarizing reactions to it in the in the aftermath. Um, but I wasn't focused on that when I was reporting it. The thing I really did sort of take away from it was watching families who had choices technically, but maybe not good ones, you know? And so maybe you had a family who was in this sort of under-resourced, segregated elementary school, you know, public school in Pinellas, and maybe there's a charter school nearby that they can go to, but it's actually not doing much better than the school that they came from. You know, it has many of the same issues. And so then maybe they bounce to, you know, a private school with a, a voucher and then there's pitfalls there. You know, just kind of this this thing that stuck with me was this tension between systemic reform, which can take a long time. Um, and, and what do you do for your child right now? And and that is kind of actually what informed a lot of the reporting and the research for the book was sort of looking at where that fit into this history and kind of how that played out. 
And I, I imagine I know the answer to this, um, but when families were weighing what they were going to do, where they were going to send their child, um, and when you were doing this reporting, were they thinking about politics? Were they thinking about the fact that sending their child or using a voucher could be a win for Jeb Bush? Or what were, what were some of the things that they were actually thinking about? No, and politics wasn't in it at all, you know, and and that's one thing I, you know, I tried to highlight a little bit in the book. I have a very sort of short um, section where you kind of have to zoom out a little bit from this argument and and move away from that and, and look at, well, what are the what are the families actually looking at? You know, they're they're not really concerned about church state legal history, you know, they're they're not necessarily having this sort of political debate or or viewing this at all through that lens. It's very much about, you know, does this school have recess, which the public schools that I wrote about in Pinellas County, some of them at the time did not even have recess. Um, you know, some of those classrooms were so stark that they you know, they made me want to cry when I left them. I felt bad that children were in those schools. Um, some of the some of the families I talked to were very worried about safety. You know, I mean, some of their kids had been hit or kicked or, you know, they'd, they'd experienced violence in the schools. Um, and so safety was a concern. You know, there were just some of the actual concerns had had nothing to do with politics and very much to do with how is my child going to navigate the school day? Are they going to learn to read? Are they going to get to go outside and play sometimes? You know, is the school a joyful place? Is it is it focused on test prep? You know, all of these things that are very familiar to me as a parent um, and sometimes get, I think, lost a little bit in the debate and, and maybe should be grappled with more. Yeah, I think one of the, also one of the most fascinating scenes I recall from the book is when Betsy DeVos showed up at a, a private school in Milwaukee to talk about school choice, to promote school choice. She, of course, is probably the most polarizing education secretary in history, drew a lot of protesters and a black parent walking his child in said, you're, you're talking about somebody's kids. Um, what do you think that moment sort of shows us about the school choice mo- movement? Yeah, you know, I... I really appreciated that that school in Milwaukee for for letting me sort of come in. I wasn't there for the the protest. I visited that school later and interviewed families. And that that particular um, scene that that man recounted for me, you know, that kind of came from from the families who were a little bit sort of hurt and maybe irritated that that this debate was essentially happening about their child without sort of the recognition that it was about their child. And, um, and you know, and what I thought was interesting there is that's a, a Lutheran private school in Milwaukee. It's a, it's a fairly high performing school um, because Milwaukee's program requires a certain amount of accountability. You can actually compare test scores. And so that's a fairly high performing school. It's considered, you know, one of the maybe better schools that takes vouchers. It's, it's predominantly black. It's predominantly low income. It was at the time. I assume it, it may still be now. Um, but one of the things that the parents picked up on 
was that many, many of the protesters, most of the protesters were white and they were very much reacting to Betsy DeVos, who, you know, as you said, is a, is a really polarizing figure herself. But I thought this was so interesting as far as all of these threads that I was sort of following in the history, you know, because it, it was about race. It was about who was using the school vouchers and it was about who was protesting the school vouchers. And, you know, and I thought there were some things sort of crystallized in that moment where I could sort of direct the reader's attention a little bit more to families and how they're sort of living this out and what they're interested in and, and maybe use that protest to sort of get at some of those things. You know, um, one of the things that is really interesting is that race is a thread that's pretty much unavoidable throughout the the book. Um, you know, it's pretty overt at the beginning. Um, white families are using school vouchers to escape integrated public schools. Um, but, you know, it, things get sort of muddled, obviously, at, at the same time, a lot of um, black leaders are saying that this is a tool for empowerment. Can you talk a little bit about the surprising ways that race has played into the school choice movement? Yeah, you know, I, this is one of the things that I also was sort of captured by as I was doing the research, because if you're starting sort of in this time period in 1950, you know, with segregation, and that's one of the main elements at the beginning when Friedman and Bloom are making their arguments, and you kind of track that over time, you know, I mean, race is unavoidable. It's a major part of the history. And and frankly, I think the argument that this was a civil rights issue is sort of how, you know, school choice advocates essentially won the day and, you know, legally speaking and and um, and made their case to the public in a lot of ways. And and so it's it's interesting to see, you know, how that how that tension plays out, because you you also have black families and Latino families who are opposed to school choice, you know, and you kind of have to grapple with that. Um, Milwaukee had a lot of um, support from black leaders. You know, Polly Williams was very influential, but other black leaders were also in support and that had a lot of sort of grassroots support from black families. But Cleveland actually didn't. And I thought that was interesting because a lot of um, black legislators uh, in Ohio actually were opposed, you know, very much opposed to school vouchers. And they felt like this is going to bleed resources out of the school system. You know, it's not going to help enough kids to make it meaningful while it actually pulls things out of a a system that needs help and needs resources. And so I felt like, you know, I wanted to sort of make those different points that this wasn't all one thing. It wasn't supported by, you know, it wasn't this kind of monolithic thing and it played out differently in different cities, you know, and you saw that also in Washington, D.C., when initially some of the, you know, black democratic lawmakers were opposed to school vouchers. And then I think because the city school system was was not doing well, came around on the issue, you know, and so I just, I, I tried to look for different elements of the history that sort of expose some of those those threads and the different ways that, that race played into it. Uh, one of the most, and I don't mean to touch the third rail here, I think one of the most controversial assessments I've heard of the school choice movement, and you get into this in the book, 
um, is that you know white conservatives are using black families, black leaders, um, and purposefully starving public schools of resources to advance school choice, that they're quote-unquote using them. Um, with Polly Williams, there was actually uh, a white leader who, who openly said, we used Polly Williams uh, for her race and for her party. What do you think of that assessment that some people who, against the school choice movement have made, that black families um, and the black community is being used to advance these arguments? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I found that interesting as well. But I think, you know, you have to actually talk to Black families and to to Black leaders. You know, Polly Williams is gone, but she addressed that during her lifetime, you know, that she did not feel used. You know, she had different intentions for choice than some of her allies did, and she was extremely comfortable calling them out publicly when she felt like they were going in a direction that she didn't agree with. Um, you know, Howard Fuller, who also is in the book and uh, is an influential school choice advocate nationally and, and from Milwaukee, you know, he sort of addressed that too and and had differences of his own with some of his white conservative allies. And some of those differences really came out over accountability for the programs. You know, some of the some of the people like Fuller and Williams wanted greater accountability uh, for the program because they saw some of the problems for families when things didn't go well, like a school closed, you know. And so I think I think it's not for me to say if conservatives are using black families or black leaders. I think it's for them to say. Right. Because I think they have agency. Um, you know, I think that. I think that. um you know, Fuller kind of said he addressed this and he said, you know, that that he could see why conservative allies wanted to sort of hold him up because he was he is, you know, former superintendent of Milwaukee Public Schools. He's a choice advocate and he's a black man. And he addressed this in his memoir and said that he very much understood why they would want to sort of push him out front and center as a face for the movement, similar to how they had with Polly Williams. But at the end of the day, for him, he thought that school choice was the best tool of empowerment for black families, you know, and for for all families, really. So, you know, I think it's, it's maybe a more nuanced answer to that charge that you hear, you know, and I think that we see this with polling, too. You see a lot of support for school choice and have for a long time, you know, from Black and Latino families, especially young ones. And I definitely don't want to leave public schools, traditional public schools, out of the conversation. What has all of this meant for traditional public schools? And what do you think it's going to mean in the future as the school choice movement, if it continues on the current trajectory, continues to grow? You know, I think it's going to play out a little differently depending on on where it is, right? Because I think we're seeing this play out regionally almost. You know, red states are passing all of these choice programs. Blue states, not so much. In fact, in some blue states, you see some pullback on, you know, charter schools, some greater regulation. And so what's what's interesting to me and why I, I sort of drew some of the conclusions I drew is, you know, that that if you're talking about having different school systems, 
you know, essentially different school systems in red state versus blue, then we already have gone a really long ways from where we started, you know, with a, a traditional public school system for everyone. And I think, you know, it's still playing out with some of these programs, the universal programs, it, some of the early projections, you know, in Arizona and in Florida have these programs costing a lot more than maybe was anticipated in part because they're also open to families who already are in private schools. So the state is essentially subsidizing private education, you know, and I, so I, I really wonder if there's not going to be some kind of backlash or some kind of attempt to, to deal with ballooning costs. But I also, you know, I wonder if Republicans really can or would want to pull back on that. And so I just, you know, I think at the end of the day, there's almost, there's, there's only so much money and, and the way some of these programs work, you, you don't have a very good ability to plan, you know, your budget as a school district. And so, you know, I don't think that it, it bodes really well for, for traditional public schools, but I, but I do think it's going to, you know, it's just going to be different in Florida versus, you know, where I grew up in Washington. Well, we're out of time. Thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation. The book is wonderful. And congratulations again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 